0: Hello everyone, it's November 2nd, 2021. This week we're looking at Orbital Reef. It's a business park but in space, easily making it the coolest business park ever, which isn't hard to do really, but yeah, it's another commercial station in Leo concept. Those are always fun. Let's take a look at it and lift off. And we are through the tower. Welcome to episode 332 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. My name is David. Um, my name is Ben. And I'm Dennis. <laughs> you sounded surprised to say that. Yeah, because,
1: <laughs> yeah, because you, you said, normally you say, I'm David, but you said, my name is David. I was like, oh. Do I? Yeah, you know, I'm say, I'm, I'm known I'm David. as Dennis. I currently inhabit the entity known as Ben. I guess I do say, I'm David.
0: You know, it's weird. They both sound right to me. I can't figure yeah. it out. I think it's, and this has happened a bit lately where like you say something or you do something so many times that mm-hmm. you, that like it basically, I don't know what you would call it. It becomes the opposite of like an instinct or a habit, and it's all new to you again. Mm.
2: It starts to sound wrong, even
0: though. Yeah, like, right. Yeah, like like there's certain things in the show notes, or not the show notes, but like when I'm posting the episode, I always put the title in uh, the ID three tags, mm. and I can't remember if, if I put a dash in there or not. Which is a small thing, but I've done it for years, and now I don't remember at all if I do it or not. It's just <laughs> weird how I've just forgotten.
2: It sounds like the same feeling like when you you just write a word and you're like is this spelling correct it just doesn't look yeah. right and you're like certain that you've written it correctly but it just looks weird to you
0: yeah or if you say a word enough times it starts to not sound like a word mm. all right anyway yeah i don't know if that was much of an intro
1: all right let's let's do this show
0: Something called Orbital Reef has been announced, and I guess we didn't know much about this because it was just announced at uh, the 2021 International Aeronautical Congress. Now, at the 2019 one, which we went to, uh, Jeff Bezos got up on stage and did something similar, and I think that was the announcement of the national team, right? Mm -hmm. So, is this – so, I I mean, that didn't pan out the way he wanted, so I guess he's trying again, but this time with even more partners and with an even more ambitious – uh, project here so i find that interesting like he he's using this particular event to you know announce some pretty ambitious stuff but just having seen what happened with uh, the national team project and uh, you know how that all went sideways i'm a little bit skeptical about this one perhaps just because it's it's you know well i guess just because it's led by blue origin and sierra space i don't know i do very much like the concept so
2: yeah yeah and not, and not to send us down a bunny hole but like I really wish they would just focus on one thing for more than just a couple of years before announcing That would a new be thing. nice,
0: yeah. That's um, absolutely true. I thought
1: the timing right after uh NanoRax's announcement was a little <laughs> suspicious. Like yeah. obviously this this has been in the works for a long time, but it just felt like you know how like um Branson went to orbit first and then you're like oh no 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 i i want to go too i want to go too like ah he beat me <laughs> and and then yeah NanoRacks comes out with their uh their space station and bezos is like no no no! me too me too also me <laughs> pay attention
2: you could always say it was just because iac being what it was but yeah that definitely right uh, yeah cl- clearly once- this
1: was planned long ago and like it, that's not what's happening but that's that was my first impression
2: we do get that feeling, yeah. I'm, I'm picking that up too, because yeah, this is this is the uh, the fourth station announced, or the third and a half, depending on how you mm-hmm. wanna <laughs> slice it. Uh, David and I were talking a bit about that before the show.
0: Yeah, and you said that this was in the works for some time now, but how long do you think it's been? Uh-huh. Years or six months or something? Because I could to
1: get to get this many people on board, probably years.
0: Because to me, it seems like something that came about maybe over the maybe just the past year. Um, I don't know why, but because, yeah. I mean, there's not like a whole lot of huge details, but I guess there would be at this point. So, I mean, how much do you really have to, like, you just have to get people on board and that might be, you know, the biggest part, just like you said.
1: It, yeah, it depends on on what the paperwork actually is, because it might just be that they've signed, you know, a documentation of intent and that's, you know, not legally too sticky. Dawson in the chat though has a really good point about how the uh, how NASA's commercial leo development program. Did we talk about it last week? I think we did. Yeah, um, and
2: uh we did a short and sweet on StarLab, which is NanoRacks and Lockheed and Voyager. Okay.
1: Okay, yeah, there you go. So, you know, I guess it depends on when when the big players were made aware of that. That's probably when this started. Um, similar to all, all the others.
0: So I guess, yeah, let's talk about well, who, who the partners, partners are. <laughs> yeah. So we have just very quickly to run down the list. And I think that this is everyone. We have Blue Origin and Sierra Space. And those two are actually like leading the way. Mm-hmm. But then we also have Boeing. We have Redwire Space. And I don't think I'm familiar with them.
2: That's why I put so, so Redwire Space. Um, I guess. For, for us would be best known for acquiring made in space. Okay. So when you want to think of on orbit manufacturing, think Redwire now.
0: Okay.
1: Thanks. I I didn't I hadn't made that connection. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure thing. That we have Genesis Engineering Solutions um, which also is a company that I'm not too familiar with. And we have um, Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. So, and they're leading a consortium of 14 universities. So they're getting that in there too. So, yeah, that's all who is involved.
2: As you can imagine on social media, there's quite a lot of derision of this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, it's when it comes to bad press in space right now. Could you think of any two? American companies. Let's leave the Russian. Let's leave Roscosmos out of this right now. uh, That are basically coming off looking worse than Blue Origin lately, and Boeing lately. And those are two of the players.
0: Yeah, it did kind of feel to me like kind of like all the players who weren't picked. You know, kind of got together and made their own team, kind Mm -hmm. of a thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh but I don't want to think of it that way. And I mean, you know, there is every opportunity for them to actually do something pretty cool here. So
2: yeah, I think this could pan out because. Blue Origin, there was a really, really good interview, uh, I think a couple of months ago at this point, uh, on main, main engine cutoff, uh, Miko, where Anthony Colangelo was, was talking to an interviewing Eric Berger. And they were talking about how, essentially, Blue Origin should probably just get out of the launch vehicle business because they're not really – there's no sp- – space for them really they're not they're not doing a good job with their vehicles there Uh, they could stick to tourism or whatever and we had just spoken with uh dylan taylor and will henry uh with the gerard o'neill documentary the high frontier and a space station is very much more of a o'neillian thing you know and of an o'neillian thing to do and so Berger and Clangelo were talking about how you should probably focus more on that rather than Propulsion, trying to stick your thumb in every single pie that exists out there and focus <laughs> on getting people living in space in Leo. Cause after all, there's a lot of money that, you know, Bezos could potentially throw at that. And that's where he could really make his name long term. But Mm -hmm. instead, he really, really, really wants New Glenn to fly and to have his uh, uh, and to land humans on the moon. But screw that stuff. Build this orbital reef.
0: Yeah. So I mean, this is one step in that direction. But then also, they do still plan on using New Glenn. So yes, um, unfortunately, that's so that's going to have to be operational and you know making regular. Well, not regular, but uh, at least making a couple of flights to the station or like in order to put this together. But uh, And I guess we need to talk about how it's built. Assuming that it's a success and they do want to expand it, then you're going to need something like the New Glenn for each launch just because of the size of the core modules, yep. which are seven meters since that's the payload fairing of New Glenn. So I guess just going down the list really quick with what each one of those companies does, um, Sierra Space, they will be providing inflatable modules, which uh, are called LIFE, which is an acronym for Large Integrated Flexible Environment pretty cool and they'll also be providing dream chaser which i think at first is just for cargo and then eventually for crew Mm -hmm. so same story as we've heard before
2: these these life modules are really cool you should check out renders of them because they they're 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 three stories there is a prototype that's been built on the ground that's only two stories because the flight rated third story evidently uh is launched upside down. And so that's why they they could clearly would have an issue or Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be very valuable to build an upside down (laughs) floor.
0: And I had no idea that Sierra Space was even pursuing something like that. It's the first I've heard of that.
2: And also just if if, if anyone hasn't noticed, uh, so this is Sierra Nevada. They just kind of had officially relabeled their space division to BCR space. So if you're wondering why us and other people have changed the nomenclature.
1: (laughs) Uh, And we will be talking about another life module uh, later on in the show. Just going to put a little teaser out there.
0: Cool. Then we have Boeing, which will be providing a science module. And, of course, it will also be providing Starliner for its crew, or in order to transport crew. And it's going to handle station operations, maintenance, uh, and engineering. And then we have Redwire Space, who will be providing microgravity research, manufacturing, and payload operations, and deployable structures. So um, that'll be interesting to see what that means. And I saw on the video rendering that they do have at least one arm. So obviously you're going to need something like that on a mm-hmm. big station. So maybe they'll be providing that as well. I'm not sure. We also have Genesis Engineering, which will be providing a single-person pod, which is like a single-person spacecraft, but not a spacesuit. But I don't know what you'd call it.
1: Honestly, I would still lump it in with a spacesuit. It's just all hard upper torso.
2: <laughs> it's yeah, not flexible at all. And your upper torso is shaped like a thin brick. <laughs> That's the other Part it.
0: it doesn't have any feet, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, right? The so Delta V in the chat is talking about where do you draw the line between a spacesuit and a spacecraft, right? And and that's something that's often brought up when people are talking to the public about spacesuits and they're saying a spacesuit is essentially a mini spacecraft, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a mini spacecraft that is anthropomorphic. <laughs> it's it's shaped to be like a human being. This is not. This is again. It looks like kind of a. It looks like a brick to me with a bubble that essentially your whole upper body uh, can see through this, uh, not even a half dome, but a quarter dome, uh, bubble. And, uh, and you have these very intimidating looking arms and things like that. And so it could be used for, uh, on orbit maintenance or just, uh, tourism in the future. You can imagine if we're if you don't have to deal with the exertions of physically moving around in your spacesuit, then... Yeah, that's, that's a big that's plus. The, that, yeah, because when they talk about space tourism and people going on these EVAs just as part of, you know, the tourist package, I'm just like, what? No, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. At least not with the spacesuits we got now. That yeah. would just be...
0: that's uh, That seems
2: ridiculous to me. And so...
0: Well, you would have to be in really good shape. You have to be
2: in really good shape. Okay,
1: so I I still think that it's a spacesuit. But... I would be willing to concede if we can agree that the line between spacesuit and spacecraft is based on comfort. If you can scratch your nose, it's not a, it's not a spacesuit. If we, That's if we can definition. set it there, I am totally
0: okay with calling this a spacecraft.
2: I'm down with that.
0: <laughs> Speaking for myself, at least I think this is a great idea because, um, scratching your nose is, mm awesome i mean like that's (laughs) like the thing that seems the worst about being in a spacesuit that you can't touch your face oh i would
1: say it's the diapers but okay go ahead
0: no i mean (laughs) yeah the diapers are gross but if you have an itch on your face and you can't touch it that's got to be like it it takes real mental discipline in order to get past that
1: yeah they got they got velcro uh adhesive velcro on the inside of the at least the uh, the American suit does.
0: Oh, okay. I didn't know that there was Velcro, but I know that there's like a little thing that sticks out that you, like you can attach food to, right? And you can sort of scratch mm. yourself with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It? The <laughs> uh, yeah the uh, with a the bar. protein bar uh, <laughs> spike. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, spa- spacesuits suck right now. They, <laughs> mm. <laughs> they yeah. really They're not suck. comfortable. And so, like, I I wonder if that's part of my motivation for wanting to call this a spacesuit is, like, let's just donate anything to the spacesuit category that we can to make them a little less miserable.
0: (laughs) Anyway, yeah, but it's a cool concept. Yeah, so they're targeting the second half of this decade, um, or at least to have this launched by the time the ISS is decommissioned, because that's, in fact, that's why all the other space station proposals have come about, right? Because Mm -hmm. they want to fill that gap, which is something that they're pretty concerned about. Mm -hmm. So.
2: Been a lot of issues on the station recently, leaks and unplanned rotations, uh, <laughs> among other uh-huh. things.
0: It's definitely time for an upgrade.
2: Yeah, and by the way, if anyone wants to take any bets on them actually having this operational before the end of the decade, uh, I can hmm. send you my Venmo, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, uh, you just pay me the money because that ain't gonna happen. No bet right. here yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But hey, we don't. Yeah, hopefully the station will survive longer than that, and it'd be a non-issue.
0: Well, and so one interesting thing: this will be 500 kilometers in altitude, and it'll be at 51.6 degrees, which is the same inclination as the station. Now, is station at 500 kilometers? So I don't think it is, right? It's no, lower, it's than, lower than, that. than that. It'll so it'll be the same inclination, but uh, different altitude.
2: Yeah, like almost
1: double the height, which is pretty cool.
0: And I wonder why that is, though. Do, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Is it just for well, like station I keeping?
2: Think, I think the idea is that you'd be able to take any resources that the station doesn't need anymore as you want to build out this orbital reef. And so being on the same inclination uh, gets you that. It -hmm. also gets you access to essentially all the launch sites that you need (laughs) access to uh, on Earth.
0: Well, that part, but I'm talking about the altitude, like why the change in...
2: Oh, well, I mean, you don't want it to be at the same altitude. (laughs) You don't want to be co-orbital with the space station. And so why not just pick something yeah. and and it's, it's more like uh stations around like 400 ish. So it's, it's, it's just a bit higher.
1: Oh yeah. I guess it, I guess it isn't almost double. Yeah. Which is kind of the way that I was thinking about it. I mean like, yeah. Cause, cause what it, what it really comes down to is you want, you want your space station as low as it can go so that it is cheaper to fly mass to it and if you know if you've got a certain altitude that you need to be above ISS that's
0: yeah plus it also keeps orbital debris to a minimum because the higher you go the more chances there are i would think of a collision
1: right why you would want to be lower yeah it may be on the same inclination and that's kind of you know that's par for the course if you want to have an international uh facility but is it going to be on the same argument of the ascending node because like is it going to be coplanar because that's not a given you can say it's at the same inclination but that doesn't necessarily mean coplanar um but i'll I'll bet that they would just because like nanoracks has got resources i guess is the way to put it they've got hardware (laughs) on iss and so does redwire and like they may want to recover that at some point which would be really cool like we've i don't think we've had no we've had vehicles fly from one station to another back in the Salyut days,
2: yes, I remember just distinctly talking about, yeah, that.
1: there were like two you know, different missions, was... but like it it would be really cool uh to fly to one station, collect some hardware and then fly to the other one, Uh although it'll probably wind up being an automated cargo mission.
0: So to keep it in the same argument of the ascending node, wouldn't possibly procession be a problem here? I'm not sure if it would, you know, at this inclination, but okay.
1: But I I mean, the, the fact that their altitudes are so similar, I don't think it would be that hard to keep them roughly coplanar.
2: I think it'd just go into the uh, station keeping budget. Yeah. And we didn't say this either. What what would be responsible for transferring these assets would be a blue built space tug So again mm. blue <laughs> come on <laughs> just uh give somebody else a little glory maybe uh, <laughs> until you start uh, building stuff yeah exactly more new hardware
1: but but it is it is good to know that they are planning on a coplanar station like that's that's kind of a cool legacy right like even if iss was deorbited it, it's <laughs> kind of <laughs> like the um the olympic eternal flame you know like <laughs> you know, if you've got some hardware that's been moved up and it was in the same plane, even if there's no no synchronization to match once ISS is decommissioned, like it'd still kind of be cool that like this orbit is hallowed in some way.
2: would be very uh, uh, far future history books written about. Oh, here's a fun. Interesting fact people don't know. The reason why we have uh, yeah. all these yeah. things at a 51.60 degree inclination is because of this station way back This
0: back. one station that no one knows the name of anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Yeah. I like it all. It, yeah. It's like one of those obscure facts that, you know, becomes just lost to time.
1: This one old space station that NASA administrators don't want you to know about. Yeah. <laughs> There'll be clickbait in the future.
0: So the version that we see in uh, the video that they showed at the conference, the thing to keep in mind is that that is more of a built out concept. It's not uh, the initial version, which will be about one third the size, but this is like pretty cool. So the station is meant to be scalable um or like modular which i guess all stations are but this one especially so so you can just start with like one core module and then you can attach another one and another one and um um how would you describe like how it looks cuz i'm not good at describing things yeah,
2: and and i'm terrible <laughs> as well at describing things i forgot uh, I, when i was talking about ams a year or two ago and i remember i I lost the word for uh, circle and had to basically describe <laughs> something. Or, oh, disc. I didn't know how to say the word disc. And so I kept talking about a cylindrical element that had depth to it. And um, But essentially, yeah, so, so the backbone are these three large modules uh, just in a row in series. And these presumably would be the ones that New Glenn, you know, with its larger fairing, would be taking up. And there are windows uh, running along the one side across them all. And then on the other side come out these trusses that include uh, the heat radiators and then solar panels. So all your solar panels are on one side of the station, interestingly enough. And then when you go back to that main backbone, those three modules, large modules attached to each other, then coming out of the sides of them, are where you would have your inflatable Mm -hmm. modules, presumably, that CR Space is bringing to it. And some things could dock on those. Uh, You could also dock at the two ends of the large module, according to, you know, the video that we're seeing that they released. uh, You could have, you know, Dream Chaser parked on the one side and your Starliner parked on the other uh, it's tough for me to say Starliners and Dream Chasers in the same sentence. It's just a lot of uh, uh, nice <laughs> uh, branded content right there. But in any event, yeah, so that's that's the basic idea for how it looks like Does that sound... Is that about right to you? Yeah,
0: yeah. And the um, what I couldn't figure out, but I think that this is what it is. Is that the the radiators extend away from the station, and and then at the end of those radiators, that's where the solar panels are, right? Yes. The panels are recognizable, but uh, the radiators not necessarily so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured that's what those had to be. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting design. Like it's nothing like you'd see on the International Space Station. So it's a very different looking mm-hmm. concept here. But, uh, yeah, it looks pretty cool. And it has uh, the birthing port. Is that the right term I'm looking oh. for? Yeah, um, or docking port. Or docking ports. Um, I'm not sure which they are. Well, cause like, you know, it depends on like, yeah, whether you can once, actually once dock or not. Yeah. yeah. But there's like three additional ones at the end, but on the sides of each of the modules. So there's basically like you can attach one, two, three, four, five, six, like seven things to each of these modules. If you think about it, because you have the two at each end, then you have the two on either side. And that's where you would attach things like the inflatable modules. And then you have like three more that are sort of towards the end, but cover three sides which are the three sides that don't uh, have the solar panels extending away from them so um i think i described that right yeah yeah but yeah if you look at the animation you can see that and i'm not sure what those are for because you don't see anything docked to them or attached or anything um but i guess that's just for future expansion um so there's lots of little places to dock things
2: yeah and that that exactly is the idea of this being a uh, a mixed-use business park Mm-hmm. This is what they like to call that in space. Yeah, that's and an interesting so,
0: term, a mixed-use business park. Mm, yeah, Not yeah. A business park but in space. Yeah.
2: It's like I want to put my research module in slot 1. Okay, that's mm-hmm. fine. We'll have a uh we'll have an in-space manufacturing module in slot 2. Uh, you have mm-hmm. to go over there to slot 3 where yeah, <laughs> you just do whatever you, you it's meant to be tailored to a variety of customers, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that calling it a business park is a good move because that really helps like solidify exactly what the concept is here. Just because we all know what you know a business park is, so that kind of helps get an idea. So this is not quite like the International Space Station where it's much more run you know by joint partnerships between governments and blah blah blah. No, this is a business park, but in space.
2: That's that's what I keep hearing is going to be when things really really things will really really take off when you have companies that are not interested in space or being space companies or whatever, but if they can manufacture on space, right, I make X widget and -hmm. I got to make that in space. That's fine. But I'm still a terrestrial based company that makes X widgets. I just happen to do the manufacturing in space. When that Mm -hmm. happens, then all like, there's going to be so much money pouring into Leo that we're going to be able to get a lot of our space geeky ambitions, (laughs) Uh, get those itches scratched.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's a very fuzzy. If it's not exact, or it's a very Mm. fuzzy. When it's not exactly an if, but, yeah it's uh that that's not a, a guaranteed outcome, I don't think
2: yeah so so finally, uh, I think I alluded to at the top of this <laughs> at the top of the segment that this is the fourth space station announced uh, as part of the commercial Leo low Earth orbit destination program that NASA has uh, or CLD and Ben, I know you alluded to that earlier. and the other stations are if you just want to keep track, uh, not in the order that they uh, were announced, but there's uh, axiom. Space right, which has a uh, uh, really, really big, uh, really big modules. Uh, the idea would be to essentially double the ISS's volume by attaching a few of these together. So that's compared to Orbital Reef's having about ninety percent of the pressurized volume of the station. And if you're not able to remember exactly which one this is, this is the one with the super duper cupola, <laughs> <laughs> the one that is several body lengths in size. I'm talking; these windows have to be a good twelve feet long or so, 10 or 12 feet. They're gigantic. And it also has the uh, the power tower, the Axiom Power Tower, they actually call it. And this is makes it look, it looks like early International Space Station when it had the uh, the solar panels coming uh, out of the zenith direction. And that kind of lopsided shape isn't my favorite aesthetically, but it still sounds like it would be a really, really cool station. So that's what Axiom is working on. Uh, Then there's NanoRacks with Lockheed and uh, Voyager uh, space holdings with Starlab. That was a short and sweet I talked about last week. And uh, just to remind you, that's essentially a smaller. One, it's really just one major habitation module, and then there's another one next to it that I think you could also climb into. It looks like it has a window with, you know, a robotic arm. It's very bare bones. Uh, It has a propulsion element, so you could zoot it around a bit if you needed to. And uh, that would also be about 90% of the uh, ISS's habitable volume. And so that one, yeah, is Star Lab. And then this one, I had to do a little hunting down. Uh, It turned out to not be too hard to find, but... Uh, even though Sierra Space, right, is one of the two main partners for Orbital Reef, they still have on their website their own station, uh, what they call the Sierra Space Station. And so this would be essentially combining a bunch of those life modules, which again are really cool. And uh, yet this one would have only about the third, only about one third of the ISS's volume, uh, if I did my math correctly. And so, yeah. Those are what have been announced so far as part of the CLB program, and hopefully we'll get even more people throwing their hat in the ring. I don't know if... El- I guess Elon's going to Mars, so SpaceX hmm. should be hmm. expecting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to build one with 50 times the habitable volume of space station. And, you
1: know. <laughs> so two starships? Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: this week three short and sweet as usual and what is the first one Ben
1: all right the James Webb Space Telescope prepares for launch. JWST Mm -hmm. is on track for launch on December 18th. So first, yeah, we got to acknowledge that the vehicle will indeed be flown under James Webb's name, despite the protest. Uh, Nelson this week uh, made a statement indicating that no evidence of Webb's direct involvement in LGBT discriminatory actions could be found. Although access to many archives were not provided to the third-party historian, they hired Due to COVID restrictions, and no official report will be released. Dr. Walkowitz, one of the Astrophysics Advisory Committee members, actually resigned in protest over it. But back to happier news with 11 days of margin remaining in the launch schedule, it appears highly likely that the telescope will finally begin work soon. To date, the vehicle has cost an unadjusted $8.8 billion. And an additional 861 million dollars are budgeted for its first five operational years. This totals 10.8 billion dollars adjusted for inflation, which is double the 2014 estimate of 4.96 billion.
0: And then next up, Russia gives Crew Dragon the green light. Dmitry Rogozin, head of Roscosmos, recently announced that he is comfortable with Russian cosmonauts riding aboard Crew Dragon. Crew Dragon has now made four successful flights, including Inspiration 4, which Rogozin found necessary in order to determine the vehicle's safety, as Roscosmos does not have any detailed insights into the Crew Dragon craft. This endorsement does not mean that an agreement has been made on crew exchange between NASA and Roscosmos. If such an agreement is made, the earliest possible date wouldn't be until the second half of 2022.
2: And finally, Hubble Space Telescope returns to safe mode. HST went into safe mode last week after experiencing synchronization issues with the internal spacecraft communications according to a nasa tweet while the instruments are in good health operations have been suspended while engineers look into resolving the issue this is the second significant glitch this year after the space observatory had to be switched to backup hardware in july to resolve a technical problem with a power control unit the investigation into the current glitch is still underway with many hoping for hubble to show the resilience it has in the past at returning to service (sighs) once again fingers crossed for hubble
0: Moving on to this weekend's base flight history we have some winners. we have Anderson denova negative entropy as well as full credit for Ryan Rigner, who's the only person who got the reference or the exact reference that that clue was in reference to. I said that badly, but you get the idea um, it was a it was a crying what sounded to me like a crying baby, but I guess it wasn't no
1: it wasn't okay. I, I I thought people were going to get this so hard. Uh, and, uh, I guess, I guess my gaming childhood was drastically different. Um, and then well, credit does not go to the Greek this week, but I. <laughs> I gotta read this poor guy's email. He said, you gotta give me more. You're so mean. And then gave a best guess, which w- was not bad. Um, my best guess, because I have no idea where that clip is from, is that it's the sound the six people, uh, were making just before being released, uh, from 520 days of isolation in a mock Mars mission in Russia, uh, November 4th, 2011. Sign the Greek PS, you are mean. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Cracked me up. Thank you. So the the clue uh was uh something akin to the sound of six people making uh horrible agonized noises. And uh this week in space history is the 8th of November 2011. It was the failed launch of Phobos Grunt. Okay. So the clue it it's it, I grabbed uh audio from the original Halo game. Uh, of the grunts, oh. the the bad guys shouting as they were being shot, I think is what the what I the absolutely clips...
2: recognize that now. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I right. you know I almost grabbed uh, some of their spoken lines, which probably would have been a better idea because that might have been more recognizable. But like I I grabbed um, a YouTube video where somebody had taken a dump of all the audio files and parsed them out into each of the different characters, just scrubbing through and listening to some of the grunt lines like those immediately like refreshed my memory but i was also primed to be thinking of of this particular character in this particular video game anyway so all right so phobos grunt i've always thought that the name grunt was such a weird name right phobos f-o-b-o-s it's just the russian spelling of p-h-o-b-o-s the the martian moon Uh, but grunt i never knew what it was and i looked it up and it, it Is a geological term that basically means regolith. I mean, like if you look at the definition, I read the definition, I go, oh, that's that's regolith.
0: So I think it's just the Russian word for dirt. It's no more. Yeah, dirt, but
1: specifically dirt that is loose on the surface, which to me says regolith.
0: It says, according to Google Translate, it means priming, ground, soil, earth, like bottom, dirt. It means any of those things. So, yeah. Well, Phobos Phobos regolith sounds
1: better than Phobos dirt. Yeah,
0: (laughs) which is a cognate. If you're interested, that's a cognate with our word for ground. So, ground and grunt Mm. are related to each other.
1: So, there you go. Now, you can stop wondering why the heck they gave (laughs) it such a weird name. Uh, Phobos grunt had a, a pretty similar design. Designed to the two Phobos probes that were launched in 1988. Now, neither of those two were super successful either. So we kind (laughs) of kind of setting ourselves up for failure here. Phobos one failed en route to Mars, like during its cruise stage. And this was total human error. This had nothing to do with the design of the vehicle. Uh, phobos one had a software update uploaded and it turned off the attitude thrusters so the thing started uh tumbling and pointed away from the sun and its batteries ran out Th- this is such a great failure because um basically when they tested software on the ground they always had a routine that would shut down the thrusters before they ran the test and and i guess they just didn't have a big enough remove before flight digital tag on that code because they they didn't take it out and they uploaded they uploaded their software with this testing routine still in it really tells you how important it is to have proper software uh pipelines right you should have a piece of software that builds your software before you uh install it anywhere like that that should be automated that shouldn't be a uh that that shouldn't come down to somebody highlighting text and hitting backspace right like <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. that that sucks
1: okay and then phobos 2 Also failed, but it made it all the way to Martian orbit. Um, it had two landers, um, destined for Phobos, uh, and it, it shut down before, before they were able to land, but it, it did return, uh, 40 meter resolution images of Phobos. It returned data on the Martian surface and the Martian atmosphere. And, uh, yeah, so, so it had these two landers. One of them was called Prop F, which was a hopping lander that Phobos 1 didn't have. And then it had Das, which is a stationary lander that Phobos-1 also had on board. Phobos-1 swapped Prop F for a radar package that was called Grunt, which is like not a reference in any way, right? Because now we know that Grunt means ground. And so uh, ground imaging radar should uh, quite obviously be called Grunt as well. Okay, so um, Phobos Grunt was initially planned to be launched in 2019, uh, but it got delayed to 2011. What held it up? They almost made the twenty or the two thousand and nine window. They almost made it, but what held it up was uh, their hardware integration and software uh, wound up falling behind schedule. It's unfortunate that this happened, but the delay did actually allow time uh, for a different team, a Polish team, to develop a soil collection device that wound up being flown uh, on the lander. so that's that's kind of cool. So the Phobos Grunt vehicle uh, was not the only thing on the rocket, but uh, the the Phobos Grunt package... Uh, was on top of a propulsion and cruise module that was based on frigate. And then they had additional payload stacked on top of each other. Um, so first let's talk about Phobos grunt. It was intended to study the Martian atmosphere, the radiation environment, and even the, the dust that is up in high Martian orbit. They also wanted to look at how Phobos and Deimos might've formed and how they relate to Mars itself. Um, and they were going to be doing all this from a high uh, elliptical orbit. And then they were going to do a couple of burns and transfer into a, uh, an orbit that was very close to Phobos's. I think they called it a pseudo co-orbital something. I don't know. Um, but then they were going to land uh, a lander on Phobos, uh, do some science, collect up to 200 grams worth of regolith, and then bring that regolith back home. And I I really love this little lander because you know it's it's fairly delicate. You don't want to blast all of your rocket motors to lift off of the surface on such a low gravity body um, because it's it's going to be potentially putting your payloads at risk, you know, as, as pieces of, of dirt and dust are zipping around, you you could get hurt. And so instead what they decided to do was to use springs to bounce the lander high enough that they could ignite those engines without disturbing any regolith. I love that. I think that's a pretty obvious solution, but it just, it feels good in my head for some reason. (laughs) Uh, so some of the other payloads um, actually integrated with the lander was uh, the aforeteased uh, life module. This was created by the Planetary Society. Life in this case stands for Living Interplanetary Flight Experiment. And it was basically a sealed capsule with some extremophiles on board. So microorganisms that have evolved to live in fairly extreme environments on Earth. And what Planetary Society wanted to do was to do a a very simple test of one part of the panspermia theory, um, which is the idea that life could have evolved uh, on one planet in the system And then due to large impact events could have ejected some, uh, microorganisms out into interplanetary trajectories that then could have landed, uh, somewhere else, maybe, uh, Mars or Venus, um, or maybe even, you know, one of the moons of Jupiter or something, uh, survived the trip because they were uh, embedded in rock and, and fairly protected, um, and then escaped the rock on impact and gone and reproduced on a different planet. Now. So obviously the life module is, is a very narrow test of a very narrow part of the whole theory of panspermia, but it's still a a really cool question to ask. Can we take extremophiles today, fly them to Mars and back and see them survive? So that was actually on board the, uh, the, the Phobos lander, which makes sense because it, it, they wanted to bring it all the way back home. Another payload that was actually going to be, uh, separated from Phobos Grunt proper, <laughs> Phobos Grunt, uh, the main feature was, uh, a vehicle built by China. It was called the Ying Ho 1 orbiter. And that would separate before, uh, Phobos Grunt changed out of the elliptical orbit into a kind of co phobos orbit um and ying one was intended to uh study the magnetosphere of mars uh mars's ionosphere if it had one uh and the way that the solar wind interacted with uh with mars Uh, um great questions to ask um now i think we have uh the exact data that they were hoping to collect. So it's kind of cool that, you know, ideas never die, right? And this wasn't China's only payload. They also had a payload called SOPSIS, uh, which got installed on the lander. SOPSIS stands for uh, Soil Offloading and Preparation System. And uh, this was built by uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic. And it, it's really interesting. I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, you can read a little more, but, uh, apparently the, the PI on this system is this kind of eccentric, uh, planetary geologist, uh, at, at Hong Kong Polytechnic who like was just so fascinated, uh, by Phobos that I would bet after reading this article about him, I would bet anything that he is still working on getting uh, something like Sopsis uh, to Phobos. But, but Sopsis was a super lightweight microgravity rock grinding tool. So you could pick up some rocks and grind them into pieces. And at least at the time, the person writing the article, I don't, I'm assuming this is true of the, uh, of the scientific community as a whole, but like basically nobody could even design a system this lightweight that could grind rocks up. So I think that's pretty cool. It's, th- this is actually one of the payloads that I'm most sorry to see not having reached Mars. There were two additional landers uh, that would have gone to Mars named Marsnet. Oh, Metnet. I'm sorry. Uh, Two Metnet rovers, um, which were planned to be built by the Finnish uh, Meteorology Institute, Uh, but mass constraints wound up kicking them off the mission.
2: Those are fascinating. I'd never heard of these.
1: I know, right? Like, I I think everybody's heard the name Phobos Grunt, but actually digging into it. Like this was a really cool mission, like cooler than, you know, just the basic idea of doing interplanetary material return would suggest. And like, that's pretty cool to begin with. Okay. So Phobos Grunt launched successfully, but then failed to make its Mars transfer orbit burn or, or burns is it? the case turns out to be. So they launched into an initial orbit of 207 kilometers by 347 kilometers. That's 129 miles by 216 miles. Once they got into that initial orbit, they were planning on making two burns to get up to MTO. The first would pop them up into a, a fairly high elliptical orbit. Actually, I'm going to say more like a... a a medium Earth orbit, uh, a 1.2 hour period orbit. Um, and then the second burn would get them up to the hyperbolic escape trajectory. So, so this upper stage was based on the frigate upper stage. Um, but it had this cool extra feature, an, an ejectable fuel tank. So after they did their first burn, they would dump the, uh, the ejectable fuel tank, uh, before they went into their second burn. I, I love small ejectable fuel tanks. It feels so Kerbal and familiar and, <laughs> you know, oh crap. I, I just barely don't have the delta V margin I need. Let me let me just add a a stack separator and get rid of one of these tanks oh there we go okay everything works out so neither of these two burns actually wound up taking place and i don't think that this next fact really contributed to the failure but it it does kind of talk about how intense this whole mission was both of these burns because of the way that earth and mars were set up both of these burns would have had to take place outside of roscosmos's ground stations or the view of their ground stations and um they actually asked volunteers to make optical observations and report their best guess uh or their their most precise observation so that roscosmos would be able to um, get some additional data points once the vehicle came back into view of their ground stations and they, and they could make a better uh, estimation uh, of its orbit. But like I said, uh, they, they never even got to that first burn. Basically, they went into the period where the first burn was supposed to happen, looked for the vehicle and couldn't find it where they thought it was going to be. And, of course, they found it uh, back on its original orbit. When when that data came in, when they said, okay, we failed to make our first burn, a clock started ticking. They had uh, batteries on board that would only last for three days. And that was sort of the, the first hurdle. Can we get this thing uh, stable in these three days? Uh, we're going to start talking about dates here. So I want to remind you that the launch occurred on the 8th of November. Remember, remember that the 8th of November. That's going <laughs> to make things worse, isn't it? Okay. So uh, three days worth of battery. But they actually found the vehicle was doing some maneuvers on orbit. Uh, it, it sounds exactly like what you'd expect from automated orbit maintenance. Uh, the vehicle goes, oops, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Oh, hey, my periapsis is pretty low. Let me raise that sucker up. Um, and, and indeed, the, the periapsis did, uh, did end up getting raised by, I think, like 50 kilometers or something. And the vehicle also deployed at solar arrays, um, which meant that they had plenty of power, uh, you know, the sun being nearby and all. Um, and so their, their next deadline turned into the, like the first week of December, uh, and that, just came down to the size of their transfer window. So the vehicle is safe. We just got to get it out of here on time. NASA had been, had agreed to be part of the mission, right? Like I already mentioned, uh, a Polish instrument, two potential, uh, Finnish landers, um, like, like all these different countries were involved. And NASA's contribution was access to the deep space network. Like DSN is great for deep space, but for one reason or another, you know, it, when it comes down to radio waves, like all of my ability to make assumptions <laughs> goes out the window. <laughs> um, but they wound up modifying the 15 meter dish uh, at Perth so that they would be able to hopefully talk to this vehicle in in low Earth orbit. And so, uh, Perth and I believe the Baikonur ground station started sending commands to the, to the vehicle. Hey, turn on your transmitters. Like, dummy, you're in the wrong place. At least talk to us. And, and these, these commands were successful. Um, they did get a signal back on November 22nd with no telemetry. The next day they got a signal. That included 400 frames of, of telemetry data. And it was, the carrier signal was good enough that they were able to get Doppler shift data. Um, and then the day after that, the, the 24th, they also made contact from Baikonur, right? On the, uh, the 23rd, those 400 frames were from Perth. And then they, they heard from it from Baikonur as well. So they have a little bit of telemetry data. They have a very good idea of where the vehicle is and the, the troubleshooting really begins in earnest at this point. And, and they decided that the issue probably had to do something with the power system. Uh, they weren't a hundred percent sure, but the vehicle seemed healthy enough that they started sending commands to the vehicle uh, to basically reset. Hey, you're not in cruise mode, reset. And do this burn and get out of here before we run out of time. And they, they tried multiple times, both from Perth and Baikonur, and none of them worked. Um, oh, actually, they, they also tried sending them from an ESA ground station. I wasn't able to figure out which, but like, you know, all these different ground stations sending commands multiple times. Um, and, and none of them, as far as we can tell, none of them worked. Um, what really sucks though is the odds weren't very high. I think their, their biggest, m- most of their betting money was on Perth being able to do this communication, successfully get this command, uh, to the vehicle. But, um, it, it's not even clear if the, the dish at Perth was able to do this. Like even in the best case scenario, it, it sounds like it just, I don't know if that means that its its focus was too far, or it was just too powerful, uh, or maybe it wasn't designed to send commands uh, that the low-gain antenna could pick up. I, I don't know. So, uh, long story short, the vehicle wound up re-entering the atmosphere. By early December, which is kind of when we're talking about this thing being able to go to Mars at all, um, the apoapsis had dropped significantly from 347 kilometers down to 305 kilometers. And it was, uh, falling out of orbit pretty quickly. The, the apoapsis was dropping by multiple kilometers every day. Um, and, and that's despite the fact that the vehicle had managed to raise its periapsis. So, you know, whenever there's a vehicle re-entering Earth that wasn't supposed to, there's always issues. You know, there's always concerns about where is it coming down? What's going to hit the ground? But in this case, um, you know, of course, Roscosmos the entire time is saying, "Ah, oh, it's fine, it's fine, nothing will hit the Earth, don't worry about it, it's all going to burn out. Um, but independent analysts were actually worried about um, the hydrazine and the nitrogen tetroxide on board because there's a possibility that they could have become frozen on orbit, which, you know, might be one of the reasons that this thing wasn't able to do a Mars transfer orbit burn uh, at the end. Like maybe, maybe they were successful in in commanding the thing and it just didn't have any liquid fuel to do it with. Um, but the, the concern was that if these propellants are frozen, um, it's going to take a lot. Of heating time to get them to melt and combust. And uh, the, the worry was that they would actually hit the ground intact and, and contaminate uh, places where people are. Ultimately, it seems like that wasn't the case. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like anything hit anywhere near inhabited regions. But like I'm being really cagey about this because we don't actually know where the thing re-entered. We know it was somewhere over the Pacific or, uh, South America, but even though the Russian government disagreed on, on where it re-entered, um, the military said, um, that it re-entered in the South Pacific off the coast of Chile. But Oh, I guess it wouldn't have been the, the government, but civilian ballistic experts in Russia. I, I don't know if they were government uh experts or not, but c- civilians said that it actually reentered over Brazil and into the Atlantic. So uh like if they don't agree, I don't think that. I don't think we can really come to a conclusion. But in any event, no eyewitness reports were ever identified. So it seems like if it did uh, impact the surface, it would have done it either in an uninhabited part uh, of South America or it would have happened in the ocean.
0: It's kind of hard to believe that you couldn't in any way track something like that, you know, like get a better idea. It's just a mystery where it came, where it fell out of the sky. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who maybe saw this happen, but. You know, didn't report it, maybe. I mean, and, and they don't, you know, have the ability to say that that's what that was, obviously, either. But
1: yeah, and and I mean, like, we, we, re- it's not even that we, you know, have discounted witness, uh, witness reports. Like, we don't have any. Like, it's, we just mm-hmm. don't know.
2: That's weird. And this is 2012 at this point, which is yeah. exactly, uh, you know, lost in the fog of time. <laughs> so
1: it, it re entered. We know on January fifteenth, we're, we're just not sure where. Okay, so now let's talk about the failure cause, and you know I love a good failure analysis. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. um, th- this isn't going to be super long or detailed, but it is interesting. So initial reports, uh, the the initial failure report itself actually said there were counterfeit microchips uh, from one of the contractors. Um, and all of this was due to a single upset event. The vehicle got hit with a cosmic ray, uh, flipped, uh, one bit too many and, uh, and, and the computer died and it's all the contractor's fault. No, that's not true. (laughs) Um, the, the vehicle was so low, uh, in in such a low orbit that, you know, it was pretty well protected by, uh, by earth's magnetosphere. You know, certainly this kind of damage does happen. Um, but, uh, from what I was reading, um, people familiar with the systems just said, no, that it, it, that might have been an issue once it got out into space. But here it, that, that couldn't have been, or at least that wasn't a credible, uh, cause. So even though that was the initial failure report, even the Russian government later acknowledged that there was a, 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 a different cause identified. You might be able to guess what that cause was. And yeah, it was a software error. <laughs> Gosh darn software errors. And this is after they had extra time to do the the software development. Okay. So it, it's not clear to me what the actual software error is, but the way that it wound up working out is um, two different working channels in the computer were rebooted, um, which It appears that they were supposed to be rebooted um, at some point before the burn, but the problem is that they were rebooted simultaneously. And so it sound to me, I'm interpreting this as some sort of loss of state. But in any event, this double reboot at the same time disallowed the first uh, attempt at a at a burn um, and then it sounds like you know there was enough state loss that they just were not able to recover the vehicle I, I imagine that you know if they had better communication systems on board and they were able to upload new software they could have you know done another reboot or whatever and 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 got all this sorted out but it it just seems like they didn't have enough time they didn't have enough bandwidth or whatever and it you know they they were expecting this vehicle to be able to do its own thing without much intervention and that wound up uh biting them in the butt and what's really sad is that you know those orbital maintenance the automated orbit maintenance burns that i was talking about actually that wasn't uh, intelligent that sounds like it was most likely uh, just ullage firings getting ready for the main burn. And it sounds like the vehicle actually tried to do its burn multiple times, uh, and it did multiple ullage firings and raised its orbit a couple of times. Um, but, uh, but wasn't able to actually complete the burn. Now. I think it's pretty unlikely that, that it's, you know, propellants were frozen and that's why it wasn't able to do this burn. I think it's much more likely that the software continued to do the exact same reboot. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if, if anybody really knows uh with too much certainty uh, at this point, Ah, poor Phobos grunt a repeat mission was actually planned for 2020 last year right um but uh when russia got involved with the exomars orbiter um the the trace gas orbiter they they ended up canceling this uh, uh phobos grunt part 2 um there may well be a a phobos grunt 3 uh, part part 3 <laughs> part part 2 a uh, second try i don't know um but but phobos grant may still happen um a budget proposal actually was written um for a version that would have been launched in uh 2024 kind of sounds like that is uh, unlikely to happen, and they're more likely to go with um, not a repeat, but like a follow-on mission called Mars Grunt. Um, and Mars Grunt, if it if it flies right now, would be flying in twenty twenty six. So you know, we we may wind up seeing something, you know, the the child of of Phobos Grunt, uh, if not a, a clone of it. And and I I think that'd be really cool. I hope that we see. All of the cool hardware that that was flown on this mission get reflown in in some version uh, in the future.
2: yeah would China still be involved with Mars Grunt? Do you know?
0: I, I have no idea. That's interesting. I didn't know about a possible third attempt.
2: Y-
1: yeah, yeah. third is is kind of a or, yeah kind of what, second, second maybe kind of third because you know <laughs> they they did try to launch a couple years before, so yeah. But yeah, isn't that, not that cool that they actually have talked about uh, reviving the thing?
0: Yeah, cool. All right. Well, that was a really cool This Week in Space Flight History, the, the infamous failed Phobos grunt mission. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah, you tied the clue in. So there's your explanation. I didn't play yeah. that particular game. so Sorry
1: I... it was so hard. I, I, thought, I thought for sure people were going to be streaming <laughs> in.
2: Then in retrospect, everyone's going to recognize it now because I, I certainly... Made the connection only after you said it. <laughs>
1: yeah. maybe, maybe I should have included like the sound of a needler or something. <laughs>
0: All right. So that was this week's. And next week, Dennis, uh, the date range is the 9th through the 15th of November. And do you have a clue for us? I
2: do. Next week in 1970, parietal eye in the
0: sky. Parietal eye in the sky.
1: I love this. We're going back to 1970. We've done a lot of recent <laughs> ones. Yeah, we have. We're going back in history and we've got, we got a great clue.
0: All right. Well, if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got five of them this week. Um, Five events, couple launches. First one is a launch that was supposed to have launched today as we record, but will be launching on November 3rd. And that is the Falcon 9 with Crew 3 at 0510 UTC. So that is actually Tuesday night, depending on where you are. But, uh, yeah, e- either Tuesday night or very early Wednesday morning, launching from Kennedy Space Center and from Pad Launch Complex 39A.
2: And after that launch, when you want to watch it reach station, <laughs> keep an eye out on uh, uh, November 3rd, uh, Wednesday, at 11 p.m., coverage will uh, – well, not even coverage. Uh, uh, I guess that is when the uh, Crew Dragon will be docking to the International Space Station. And so uh, that is – Uh, Again, pretty late on uh, uh, November 3rd, Wednesday, and so that was in Eastern Daylight Time at 11 p.m. And then continuing on to Thursday, November 4th at 12.35 a.m., so really, really early in the morning technically, is when the hatch opening will take place. And then at 1.10 a.m., almost 24 hours exactly from the launch, uh, will be the welcoming ceremony. And so keep an eye out for those on NASA TV if you are a... Well, if you're on the East Coast and definitely if you're uh, 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 someone who likes to stay awake (laughs) late, if you're you're a night owl, uh, this is just for you. Later in the day uh, at 1 p.m. also on November 4th, Thursday, at 1 p.m. Eastern time will be the L-30 press briefing for the double asteroid redirection test or DART. So, yeah, yeah, super exciting stuff there. And that L-30, that's 30 days to launch.
1: Yeah, getting close. Alright, after that is going to be a Long March 2C or YZ1S, uh, flying Yaogan 32-2. So, uh, this is three, uh, Earth observation satellites, uh, joining uh, 76 other Yagan satellites. Um, it's a, it's a popular, uh, spacecraft bus. Okay. Um, so this is flying out of, um, Jiuquan. So of course the launch window is a bit fuzzy, but it looks like, uh, they actually, uh, have a a pretty solid, um, launch window on this one. I, I, I'm assuming the, uh, the government must've put out, um, uh, an actual statement of when they're going to launch. Um, so this is, uh, Wednesday, November 3rd from 0736 hours UTC to 0804 uh, hours UTC. Um, so like a, about, about a half hour there. And yeah, I already said you chuan. So. There
0: you go. And then after that, on the uh, well, the fifth through the twelfth of November, we have an Astra launch. So this is Astra Three, Astra Rocket Three, uh, with uh, the STP twenty-seven AD two, right? So that's a Space Force test payload. Uh, and it says here, contracted through the Defense Innovation Unit's other transaction agreement with Astra Space. Okay.
1: Say they've launched other. They, mm-hmm. They've launched uh, other transaction agreement. Uh, the, uh, payloads before, yeah.
0: Mm. Okay, and it doesn't have an exact time. It just says here zero hundred UTC, so we can assume that that might be it. But I'm guessing mm. that might not be the actual launch time, since they mm-hmm. it looks like they can launch you know pretty much whenever they want. So, um, I guess keep an eye out for that. That's gonna be a bit harder to watch if we don't know exactly when it's gonna be. But there will be, I'm sure, some notification just prior to that.
2: Yeah, join our Discord and you'll definitely find out. Yeah. <laughs> ahead
0: of time. So yeah, that's launching from Kodiak Launch Complex in Alaska from pad LP3B. And, uh, yeah, so we'll watch that and wish them luck. Yeah,
1: for
2: sure. And then finally we'll have, uh, hopefully, uh, the successful launch this time of the Epsilon rocket, uh, taking a pretty big, uh, Rideshare mission to sun synchronous orbit. And so this is the Japanese rocket that had been delayed, um, due to stuff that I think was related to the ground support equipment or communications mm-hmm. or something going on there. And so in any event, keep an eye out on November 7th with a window from 04800 to 05900 UTC. And the rideshare will include, uh, a whole bunch of payloads, uh, where the, the big one is what's called RAISE 2, which consists of six uh, small set demonstrators on board, but then elsewhere in the uh, payload distributor, dispenser, whatever you want to call it, are at least another you know half a dozen or so uh, different payloads uh, going to Sun Synchronous again. And so uh, it will be flying out of Uchinora uh, Space Center in Japan at the M5 pad.
0: Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's gear up with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkies and Tim Dodd for our music.
2: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Chris, aka Steigarfield, Delta V, Mike, Colin, Deathkin, Kenton, and Hartvik for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you.
1: If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit Visit OrbitalMechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com
0: So that's it. We will see you all next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye everybody. See you.